this is basically kind of an intro sermon to our uh, next eight-week series called How to Pray. And I just wanted to share just a little bit about it and do a little bit of intro and overview this morning. But I wanted to say uh, that I hope what comes clear over the next eight weeks is, uh, for me, this is not just something to put on the preaching calendar or just something to do as kind of our fall uh, uh, launch, which is which is fine. This is what churches do and organizations do, and, and we do that sometimes as well. But but I, I don't really want to approach it this way because for me, I think that this next eight weeks has the potential of really altering the trajectory of our community and really deepening our felt experience and awareness of the presence of God, as well as increasing our experience of what it means to live the Christian faith making intimacy with God the priority from which everything else flows. And so the, the title of the series is, is simply How to Pray. I stole that one because one of the, um, uh, so the book that I would recommend if you want to dive deeper into some of this content and I think uh, some, of the, some of the groups uh, that we're doing may be looking at it too, is simply the book called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal Peter, uh, People by Peter uh, Gregg. And so if you, if you didn't get that, uh, holler at me or send me a text. I'll send you a link. You can order that book. Of course, a look, some of the content will be in some of the sermons, but the, it goes much more in depth in the book. And so if you're a reader or you like to do audio books, I have it both as an audio book and I also have a physical copy of it. So I would encourage you to, to grab a hold of that book. Now, when we say that, when I make a book recommendation, uh, sometimes... Um, uh, I neglect to say, of course, that doesn't mean that I necessarily endorse every word that's in the book, uh, but I want to read from people who know something that I don't know so that I can grow. And so, uh, so I would encourage you to take a look at that, and I'll be referencing some other online materials that you can use. So simply put, over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at prayer from its most uh, 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 basic and elementary and beginning aspects onto how we develop a mature, robust, powerful life of prayer. And so this will be uh, appropriate if you are just beginning your life of prayer. This will be appropriate if you are a seasoned prayer warrior or where I think many of us land, if you are someone who once believed in prayer and life and disappointment and cynicism has crept in and maybe perhaps crippled your prayer life, uh, this will also be appropriate for you to re-enter that most important and intimate of dialogues, which is the dialogue that we have before God. And so we will be working around a simple acronym, and the acronym is PRAY. And we will be talking about four elements of a, of a healthy prayer life, which is to pause, to rejoice, to ask, and to yield. Pra pause, rejoice, ask, and yield. This morning, I want to talk about three disciplines or three postures of heart or three attitudes that we ought to pursue in order to maintain and build or um, um, add life to our current prayer lives. The big idea this morning is simply this. We begin in prayer by keeping our prayer lives simple, real, and consistent. We begin in prayer by keeping our prayer lives simple, real, and consistent. 
a couple of verses I would like to share with you this morning, one from Matthew 6 and the second from Luke 18. Matthew 6, 5 through 8, Jesus says this, when his disciples, uh, when he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he, and, he had, um, and he's teaching the disciples how to pray, uh, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, he says this, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on street corners to be seen by people. One of the things we're going to see in here is that there, there is a common human experience. So, so some of the things that distract us from a healthy prayer life are shared by people all across time, all across ethnicities, all across, across countries, and really in some ways even across different faith approaches to God. We all share these temptations in common. And one of the things that, 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 that will kill our prayer lives is if we get in the habit of posing. So we pray in front of people to sound spiritual, or we even bring ourselves before the presence of God alone, and we, and, and we posture and pose a sense of who we are that isn't real. What God is seeking to break down is that sense that we have to pose and pretend and perform so that we learn a habit of bringing our authentic selves before God in hopes that one day we will have the confidence to live our authentic selves in front of one another and then truly give our lives away, not based on what we are hoping to project, but simply on the beauty and the reality of who we are. So, so this, this temptation to pose, Jesus attacks it from the very beginning. Don't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray out in, 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 on the street corner so that they can be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But, so we have this contrast, rather than being tempted like the Pharisees to pray hypocritically as an attempt to project and to pose, here's how you should do it. Go into your private room, shut your door, and pray. Why is it go into your private room, shut the door, pr and pray? Why, why all this emphasis on privacy? It's because it is in that place of privacy that we have the most confidence, and it's the safest place where we can actually authentically be who we are in all of our strength and weakness, faith and doubt, goodwill and anger. All of that can be expressed when we are in that private place of prayer. So the instructions of Jesus is to go into a private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And here's what he says, and your Father who sees, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And I love the ambiguity of that. There's a father who sees and he will reward you. Jesus doesn't say, go to your room, shut the door and pray and you will get whatever you want. What he says is you'll discover a God who sees and a God who rewards. And you can bet your life on the fact that he will reward you. And then he goes on to say more instructions. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine They'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Your father sees and your father knows. So the first subtle temptation that will bankrupt our prayer lives is pretending and posing. And, and I don't know why we do this, but even before the Almighty, you ever come before God and act more spiritual than you actually are? I've done it many times. 
And Jesus invites us to set aside the posing and come with our authentic selves before the Father. And then the second thing that will wreck our prayer lives, and I think this specifically speaks to evangelicals who were caught up in certain movements in the 90s and the early 2000s. Prayer is not like magic. There's not a certain phrase that you learn. There's not a certain attitude that you have to develop. There's not a secret formula to master in order to get prayer to work because it's not a magical incantation. It's not as if we say the right things the right amount of times and in the right way, we can get what we want from God. That's not it. In fact, Jesus introduces this paradox that prayer is actually based on, the re on, on certain characteristics of God that almost seem as though it makes prayer unnecessary. What he says is this, your God sees and your God already knows. So then why pray? Because the praying before the God who sees and the God who knows is the way we cultivate the actual experience of intimacy with the Almighty. I believe in the kind of praying we pray for miracles and God moves in ways that are beyond our control and beyond our comprehension. I absolutely believe in that. I prayed that way just this morning on more than one occasion. But I think that there's a truth that we miss, which is this. Prayer does not change God. He already sees and he already knows, but prayer profoundly changes the one who prays. If we are willing to do it with authenticity and with trust, not thinking of it as a place where we have to pose and posture or thinking there's just some kind of magical formula that will allow prayer to be another tool by which we control our lives. Prayer is not for learning how to control. Prayer is for learning how to surrender. And we have to be mindful. Are we seeking a spirituality for the purpose of control or are we seeking a spirituality for the purpose of surrender? Unfortunately, triumphalistic, simplistic, shallow Christianity tries to teach us techniques by which we can feel that we can control the outcomes of our lives. When you look at the Bible and you look at the heroes of the faith and you look at the testimony of faith, it is not about control but learning how to yield learning how to surrender and learning how to trust that there is a God who, who is for you, who has intents for your lives, and even when you don't understand it, he can be trusted. That is what prayer prepares us for, to move into that kind of lifestyle. So after he says this, there's another place in Luke, when Luke is introducing a parable that Jesus tells his disciples it says simply, one day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. So, for the next 15, 20 minutes, let's explore these ideas of keeping it simple, keeping it real, and keeping it up. Keep it simple. We don't have a lot of intimate snapshots of the prayer life of Jesus. We, the scriptures do bear witness to the prayer habits of Jesus to where he would, there are some scriptures that say he would get, he, he, he got up way before the sun came up and went to the mountain and prayed. 
So he, he experienced with prayer on the, d- during the early morning hours. We also have scriptures that say that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer. In fact, he did that the night before he actually chose the 12 disciples who would one day become the 12 apostles, the foundation of his church. We also know that when Jesus worked very hard and performed miracles and ministered to people, afterwards he took time to withdraw into solitude and prayer. So we don't have a lot of intimate snapshots of what went on, but we do have one. And it's in, it, it was during the greatest crisis experienced by the life of Christ. It was just before his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, and it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that one, we get a snapshot into kind of the content of Jesus' prayer. And I think that this snapshot, whether it is your Gethsemane or it's just your inconvenience, I think the snapshot presents us with three attitudes that are critical in keeping our prayer lives simple. In verse in Matthew chapter 26, verses 38, It says this, he, meaning Jesus, he told them, the disciples, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. So at the very beginning of Jesus's time of crisis prayer, it starts with his willingness to be honest about how he feels. And it starts right there. It doesn't start with how much faith you have. It doesn't start with how many scriptures you've memorized. It doesn't start with how good your theology is. Can you be real with yourself? And now this gets a little bit more complicated. Just give me a prayer book. Walk me through the steps. Here's the thing. You can be, read the best prayer books. You can get our liturgy, which I think is great. But at the end of the day, if you're just doing a ritual, and you're not connecting with who you really are, your prayer is going to be limited and anemic. It begins with being honest. And that honesty is in the realms of, in the realm of your emotions. And so Jesus begins being honest about his emotions and he confesses to his disciples, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then we get to see the prayer. He went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. And I love the simplicity and the profundity of what we see here. Jesus actually makes two contradictory requests before God. And if you're going to be authentic in your prayer life, Get ready to face your hypocrisy and inconsistency and bring it before the presence of God. Because the truth is, we are all full of contradiction and inconsistency. And one of the signs of ill health and a lack of self-awareness is an inability to admit that to ourselves and to others. But it's critical. If you're going to be spiritually and emotionally healthy and whole, you have to embrace the complexity of who you are in all of its wonder, complexity, and, yes, contradiction. So Jesus says, I'm grieved to the point of death. And then he says this, Lord, let this suffering pass from me. This is my request. And then he says, nevertheless, if it is your will, then give it to me, and I will drink the cup. So two things, Father, let it pass, yet if it's your will, this is what I want. So we learn from that 
that one of the ways to maintain simplicity in our prayer life is to simply follow the model of Jesus. Tell God how you feel, tell God what you want, and ask him for what you need. Tell God how you feel, tell God what you want, and ask him for what you need. So we see that Jesus says, my feelings are, my emotions are, I'm crushed with grief. Then he tells God what he wants. I want this cup to pass from me. And then he tells God what he needs. And yet, what I ultimately want is to learn to yield and be submissive to your will. This is how prayer works. Sometimes God may say, okay, the cup will pass. And sometimes God will say, the cup won't pass, but I'm going to strengthen you to endure it. We just don't ever know because we're finite creatures. How, how might this work? So, for example, so I think through my own life, and I think through how um, quickly I come to battle with my own self-pity. Self and self-pity and anger for me, they, they really are kind of bedfellows. And if I start to listen to them, they can create a lot of chaos for me inside my head. And so, so, so if I think of it this way, Lord, I don't feel spiritual. I'm angry. I'm disappointed. I am frustrated with you, my wife, my kids, my job, my church, whatever. I'm angry. This is how I feel. This is my authentic self. What I want from you is for you to change my circumstances. Change all the things in my life that are causing me to feel frustrated and angry. What I want for you to do is to rescue me. Change my circumstances. But in the end, what I need is for you to change me, to strengthen my character so that I might grow in patience, so that I'm then really ready to discern, should I change this circumstance or should I just embrace it with all its hardship because of what you have for me in the midst of it? I, I never know from one day to the next. But what I do is I'm saying, God, I'm angry. This is how I feel. What I want is relief, and that relief seems to me by changing my circumstances or at least changing the people in my life so they're more convenient to live with. But then what I really need, if what I need is all of this hardship in order for me to give birth to the person that I'm becoming, then that's what I want. I don't want to short-circuit that process by just praying to be rescued. If that's not what's best for me, I trust you know, and I need your spirit to work in me and to change me, to help me to endure, to cause me patience. Or even a more practical say, let's say you're out of a job, and you've been out of a job, things are getting lean, you're getting pretty nervous, and so you have an interview. And 2 o'clock in the morning, you wake up filled with anxiety because you know how much is lying on that interview. What I might do is this. Is God how I feel is this? I am anxious. I am scared. I'm 49, but I feel like I'm a 7-year-old who just lost his mom in Walmart. I, I am uncertain. There's a lot riding on this interview tomorrow. So anxiety is what I feel, and what I want is the job. And so I ask that you grant me favor. You grant me success when they zing me with those questions. Let there be the presence of wisdom that's well beyond myself so that I can answer in a way that will lend toward my success in landing this job. That's what I want. 
but what I need is for you to empower me to trust you with the outcome. Because even though for me there's a lot riding on this, I know that it's possible that this is not the best thing you have for me. It's the best that I can see, but if this goes south and goes in a way that I don't want, I don't want to spiral into despair. I want to trust you with the outcome. I want to really believe that if you're shutting this door, it's because you're awaiting to open another one. So I'll, this is how I feel. This is what I want, but this is what I need. Absolutely, if we can't do those three things, it will be hard for us to really progress in a healthy life of prayer and spirituality. Tell God how you feel. Tell God what you want and ask him for what you need. Keep it simple. Secondly, keep it real. Here are the four prayers that you have to master before you can go on into the Himalayas of your prayer ascent. They are help, I'm sorry, thank you, and wow. That's where your prayer life starts. Learn how to pray the prayer, help. Learn how to pray the prayer, I'm sorry. Learn how to pray the prayer, thank you and learn how to enter into the prayer of wow. It starts there. That's how we move into simple and real. We have to get familiar with those prayers because sometimes we're at the end of our rope and we need help. Sometimes we won't admit it to our partner. We won't admit our wrong to anyone else. But before the Almighty, we can say, here I feel safe and I feel like you won't weaponize my vulnerability. And so here I can say, yes, I've screwed this up. I have acted inappropriately, and I'm sorry. Learn how to say the real prayer of, you know, there are all these things in my life that frustrate me, but there's this whole, there's this whole cornucopia of blessings that I often overlook, and I need to stop and say, thank you. And learn how to be caught off guard like a child who's seen the Grand Canyon for the first time and recognize that encounter with God's grace and pause and acknowledge it for the miracle that it is and say, wow, keep me in awe. But the way in which we give vent to those prayers is through a very simple skill and it's to learn how to complain. That's where your prayer life begins. The first step toward authentic prayer and keeping it real is complaint. Now, this, when I typed this out and I was thinking through this concept and reading these scriptures, really encouraged me because I know a lot of you. I don't know a lot about a lot of you, but I know a lot of you are really good at complaining. So, and I am too. So it gives us, it gives me hope for our community that we have the stuff for profound prayer lives because we complain so well. And in all seriousness, that's where it has to begin. If you don't know how to complain before the presence of God, you are robbing yourself of authentic intimacy with him. Because what God wants is not just the beautiful side of who you are, but he wants you with all your chaos and darkness and frustration and yes, even your pettiness. 
Now, I actually had to discipline myself to limit the scriptural examples here. This is just a smidgen. It's a tip of the iceberg because I, I, I want it to be appropriate with our time and with our uh, attention spans this morning. But here's just a sample. We'll just look at David, Moses, and Jeremiah. Uh, Psalm 50, 55, 17. I complain and groan morning, noon, and night, and he hears my voice. None of this fake spirituality. Well, God doesn't hear that. God don't want you as a fair weather friend. God will take you however you are. And if that means you are complaining and groaning morning, noon, and night, he is there. He doesn't weary of you. Now, we might weary of you after a while, but God does not. He is there and he hears every groan and every complaint, even it be all day long, morning, noon, and night. And again, that's the only psalm I'm using, but psalm is, the psalms are filled with prayers that are not very faith-speaking. A lot of complaining and moaning and groaning going on. And sometimes even it's like, okay, the award goes to King David. Back off the drama, brother. It's all right in there. Look at Moses in Numbers 11, 11 through 12. But Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought me such trouble? Why have you brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me? And why do you burden me with all these people? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them? So you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nursing mother carries a baby to the land that I gave to their ancestors? Absolute self-pity, pathetic complaint. I don't like this, God. Are you so angry at them? Why are you burdening me with the responsibility to serve this ungrateful people? Now, look at Jeremiah. You know, if we're all comparing our conversion stories, and maybe we're in the hall of faith, and maybe what we want to hear about is Saul's conversion, because it's great. He's heading opposite way of Jesus, full-fledged in ignorance and rebellion and hard-heartedness, God intercepts him anyway. He's blinded by the light. And brothers and sisters, when that light shone in my heart, I heard the voice of my Lord. And although I couldn't see physically, I groped in the darkness in three days of prayer. And yea, behold, the scales fell from my eyes. Hallelujah, I could see and I was set free to do the Lord's purpose. That's a good conversion story. I like that one. Jeremiah has a different approach to his conversion. What he says about his conversion is this. You deceived me, Lord. You deceived me, and I was deceived. You seized me and prevailed, and now I'm a laughingstock all the time. Everybody ridicules me. Moses and Jeremiah are saying, this is not what I signed up for. I thought the grand and glorious calling to be the deliverer and the prophet would have all kinds of perks, but instead I hate this job. I don't want to be your deliverer. I don't want to be your prophet. Everybody makes fun of me. I'm a laughingstock. You tricked me. I was told that if I surrendered to you, you loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. Well, this plan stinks. I don't like it at all. This is where Moses and Jeremiah are. Why? Because they understand authenticity and intimacy that you can bring your darkest struggle and your ugliest self to bear before the presence of God's grace. I love this kind of prayer. I was talking about the prayer of complaint with uh, B.J. Nolan Thursday night. 
<laughs> he said, yeah, sometimes my prayer just sounds like, but I don't want to clean my room. I said, yes, that's it. Just Thursday morning, I was, got in my truck, and my truck is either, sometimes it's a prayer sanctuary. I, it's either a prayer sanctuary or it's just space for Joe Rogan to talk. Those are the two things that I do in the cab of my truck. And this particular morning, I turned Joe Rogan off and I made it my prayer sanctuary. But let me tell you something. I was frustrated. I was in pain. And I prayed some of the most pathetic, self-indulgent prayers of my life. That's why I loved it when BJ said that, because that's essentially what I was doing. This isn't fair. I don't want to clean my room. And I did that for 10 minutes, and, and, and I got caught up in this because I was, I was trying to you know, practice what I preach. I got caught up in this, and it just became more pathetic, more complaining, and more whining till about 10 to 12-minute mark. All of a sudden, the atmosphere in my cab switched, and it was filled with ludicrous joy as I began to laugh out loud at all the things that I was saying and just how pathetic I was becoming. And somewhere in there, Love entered the room through the authenticity of my complaint and shifted the atmosphere of my heart. So by the time I began to talk to people that day, self-pity and complaint were not the atmosphere that I brought to bear. What I brought to bear was the joy of Jesus and the truth that he can be trusted. But I only got there through being self-indulgent and pathetic and complaining for about 10 minutes before the Almighty felt a little bit more like David, Moses, and Jeremiah, and a little less like Jesus that morning. But God heard my prayer anyway. Keep it simple. You must keep it real. And you have to keep it up. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through some profound philosophical theology this morning. Let's start with a verse. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Question. Why did Jesus tell a story to show that we should always pray and never give up? Answer, because it is natural for us to become discouraged with prayer and to give up. We, Jesus isn't wasting his breath. He's not wasting his time here. He tells us these stories and gives us these encouragement because he knows to be human is to get discouraged and to give up on prayer altogether. That's why he instructs us with the parables of prayer that he gives. So the only way to be consistent is to think of your prayer life like a marriage. If you only prioritize your partner when you need them, they may be present for you, but you will not be cultivating a marriage built on growth in health and intimacy. That requires giving yourself to the daily discipline of being married. And if you don't give yourself to the daily discipline of being married, there will be no growth in intimacy and in real relational connection. And in the same way, we have to be consistent, which means you're going to be called upon to faithfully pray when you don't want to, when you don't feel like it, and when you've stopped believing in its power. That's why we're called to be consistent. That's why we're called to keep it up, because that's the most natural thing. So, for example, I, um, the energy of being 20 years old and in love with someone 
is just fantastic. It, you, when you're in that relationship where it's easy, you, no one has to say you should plan date night because just your existence is date night. Like everything else is the interruption to the living presence of date night, right? Then you get married, you get to work, you have some kids, and you get real tired. And that's just kind of the rest of your life. And sorry to discourage you all young ones here, I apologize. <laughs> but then that's when you might reach for some help because your marriage reaches a rocky patch. And one of the first things they're gonna say is things like talk to one another, share your feelings with one another, plan date nights. And then you plan date nights and you get there and uh, can you turn the internet off for just a moment while wife's not here this morning? I'm joking, don't do anything, Matt. Um, and then you plan date nights that you frankly just don't want to attend. But I might get a good pork chop out of it, right? But you press into the discipline of those date nights and you force yourself to have the hard conversations and you force yourself to come to terms with both the beauty of who you are as a partner and the ugly chaos of who you are as a partner. And you connect and you talk through those things and all of a sudden, you can honestly say like I can after 20 something years of marriage. <laughs> um, uh, gosh, we just had an anniversary. Do you remember what it was, Abby? Jen, Abby didn't know either. Uh, 26 years of marriage, 26, 27 years of marriage. 27 years of marriage. Thank you, David Delgado. Uh, and you find, I love this person tremendously more than I did when I was 20 years old. And miracle of miracles, at this point, I'm the ugliest, most beat down version of myself, and she loves me more. And the only explanation is because we pressed into intimacy through, because first marriage is a delight, then it's a drudgery, then it's a discipline, and then it's a delight again. And the same is true in your prayer life and intimacy with God. So the only way to be consistent is to reconcile to yourself that you're gonna pursue prayer even when you don't feel like it. And the easiest way to do that is to plan your time and to plan your place. In just a minute before you leave here, I'm gonna give a little moment for you to even think through that. I know where my place is, my favorite place. Back porch, ceiling fan on high, kick three or four cats out of my way, invite the dogs into my presence, hot cup of coffee. I'm sorry for you cat people, I apologize, but that's... We, we got down Pentecostal on me right over here in this area when I said that. Uh, hot cup of coffee in hand, iPhone or iPad for music, and I sat there, and that's when I am my most authentic self before the Father. Sometimes someone joins me, and some, but oftentimes I'm alone. So plan your place, plan your time. The greatest joys of my life is sitting with God and us watching the sun rise together. And so that's my place, that's my time. But yours may be different, you may be a night owl, but you've gotta plan your place and you've gotta plan your time and you've gotta keep that commitment to yourself and to your God.
Because if you don't, you will go months without pouring your heart out before God because you will not always feel like it. And sometimes you're going to feel stupid. And sometimes I feel like there's a rubber ceiling where everything I say just bounces back and just smacks me in the face and laughs at me. That's how prayer sometimes feels. And sometimes I have to take off my shoes because there is the bush that is burning but not consumed and I know that I'm on holy ground and I never know going into it which I'm going to encounter. So you just keep going back to your place and to your time. So we're going to end with this. You have to accept the fact that a rhythm of practicing quiet time is non-negotiable if you intend to mature in your faith. It just isn't. You have to accept the fact that a rhythm of practicing quiet time is non-negotiable if you intend to mature in your faith. I love what Pete Gregg says about this. He says, you cannot grow in prayer without some measure of effort and discomfort, self-discipline, and self-denial. You, just as you cannot get physically fit without regular exercise and healthy diet, so your spiritual growth will be determined to a very significant extent by the prayer exercises you choose or do not choose to establish and sustain. I have found this to be true. Wait, now, now we're going to be the, we're going we're gonna to get back into that old evangelical legalism that you said that we could be free of? No. This isn't legalism, just like it isn't legalism to work on your marriage. It's not motivated by fear and guilt. It's motivated by love. And the more you learn to love, the better you will pray. Is it, uh, I can't remember the poet that said, he prays well who loveth well. It's absolutely true. So I would suggest you see here in your notes, there's a link, prayercourse.org. If you go to that page and you see at the top tool shed and you click on tool shed, it'll drop down menu to like 31 different tools to help um, encourage your prayer life. Tool number two is a document entitled how to have a quiet time. And it will give you formats. It has a 10 minute format and a half hour format. And so even if I inspired you to the heights of spiritual ecstasy this morning, don't go do the one hour or the 30 minute, just commit to the 10 minute format. Practice it for a month, two months. Maybe you read it and say, well, that's silly and simplistic. That's fine, it's okay to have that opinion. I don't wanna do that, that's fine, it's okay to feel that way, but do it anyway. Give them a shot. Look, you're going you're gonna to you're gonna be doing something for the next two months. You might as well be at least trying to maybe learn something from someone that may know something that we don't. So go download the tool. Go through it. Now, for those of you who do not have a cell phone, a smartphone, or computer access, there are 10 hard copies already out there waiting for you at the information desk. But please, if you know you can do it, through your smart device or phone, save those for those who have limited internet accessibility. And if we run out and you need more, call the church, let us know. It'll be here for you next Sunday, I promise. So would you all stand with me as we get ready to close? I would like for you to shut your eyes, not because it makes you more spiritual, but because it limits your distractions. And here... 
three little prompts. Let it arise in your heart, whether it's spiritual or not. Question number one for you to answer before the presence of God who is indwelling you and manifesting himself in the sanctuary of your soul right this moment. What is your complaint and how do you feel about it? Some of you may not have one that's easily accessible. Just give it a moment. Some of you, that's all you've thought about since I spoke about it earlier. Acknowledge it. Speak it. Well, it's not spiritual. I don't care if it's where you are. Say it. It makes me sound pathetic, self-indulgent, weak. It's because you are pathetic, self-indulgent, and weak. So don't stop pretending that you're not. And just say it. Now, as you feel the emotions of that complaint, what do you want? I'm not sure if that's what God wants. I don't care. What do you want? I can't tell if this is my voice, God's voice, or the devil's voice. I don't care. What do you want? What's present there? What's being said? Doesn't have to be a right request or a spiritual quest. What do you want? Holy Spirit, before we ask this third question, we pray that you would see this presentation of our authentic selves as an act of worship, an act of intimacy. And as you hear our complaint, and as you hear our desires, begin to move in our hearts and help us see beyond the immediacy of our complaint. Help us to imagine what it is you might possibly be doing in our hearts through this thing that is so frustrating. Now, take a few moments and ask God for what you need. That is how you learn to pray. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given to you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. He then poured the wine and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me.